is another full episode of one of our favorite podcasts, Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkopf, produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top experts, policymakers, and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR Network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed, discounts to virtual events, and Deep State Radio swag, and access to the member-only Slack community. This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. You can learn more by visiting thedsrnetwork.com. Listeners to Words Matter will receive 25% off the regular membership price. Use code WORDSMATTER at checkout. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf. I'm here in very snowy New York City, also here in New York City. We have Ryan Goodman. Have you been snowed in wherever you are? Completely snowed in, David. Snowed in. Um, uh, which is, you know, it's nice. New York is kind of quiet. Uh, I hear there's been a little bit of snow down there where Dr. Kavita Patel is. How much snow, Kavita? About three inches in some parts. But as you know, David, that shut the city down. So, yes. <laughs> two it's, two it snowflakes in D.C. And there's <laughs> chain chain yeah. collisions on the streets. And yeah, yep. it's it's a, it's 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 pretty much a disaster. Um, we were gonna have a conversation with uh, Congresswoman Veronica Escobar and the House got involved in a debate and a vote in the committee she was involved in. And so we're going to reschedule that. Um, uh, but uh, uh, it does give us a chance uh, as a group to go and uh, sort of catch up on where things are. Let me start out with just an observation that I made as shortly before we were starting here and just sort of get your reactions. The Biden cabinet is is filling out and the Biden cabinet is really interesting. I mean, it's really interesting. It's got um, more women in it than any cabinet in history. It's, I think, two slots away from having gender parity. It's got more people of color in it than any cabinet in history. Uh, the first woman vice president, first Asian vice president, first vice president of color, the first Secretary of Defense of Color, the first woman Secretary of the Treasury, the first out gay uh, cabinet member in Pete Buttigieg. Uh, it's got, a, a t as of today, we heard that Representative Deb Holland of New Mexico is going to be the first Native American uh, uh, cabinet secretary, which I think is is great. Um, it's It's got bunch of, of young uh, people providing younger perspectives, including, of course, Pete Buttigieg, but um, Michael Regan, the North Carolina official who's going to be at EPA, um, uh, is 40-ish. Jake Sullivan is the youngest national security advisor since um, the Kennedy administration mm -hmm. over, over 50 years ago, wow. the second youngest national security advisor uh, ever. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's got a 
you know, a host of other firsts in it. It looks like America. It's got young people and old people and people of color and people from all over the country. Um, and uh, I just thought I'd get your reactions to all of this. We've had a you know bunch of controversies about Lloyd Austin or you know others. Uh, there are a couple slots that remain open, including Attorney General still. So let me turn to you, Kavita, for your reaction, and then to you, Ryan. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with just this. I walk away even as I hear the names and you're going over them again, Jake and others, people who I know who are incredible. And when you put it together, this is an incredibly diverse group. I, I will say that I think some of the initial responses, my own to you know Ambassador Rice to the Domestic Policy Council, or even Representative Becerra to the, just naming him to HHS to be candid with you, surprised me. But that's really because I think that going into this, David, we all had this like fixated prototype of what a quote administration official needed to be. And not only has the Trump administration undone that, but I think you're seeing President-elect Biden making choices that, and you have to assume Ron Klain is there with this really you know, big helping hand um, guiding some of these choices that are basically sending a signal that you know we're not going to follow some typical Washington DC prescription and we're going to do things. Oh, by the way, that includes putting um, someone who I've worked with and have a lot of respect for, Neera Tandon. She was one of the earliest uh, picks and might even be one of the most contentious picks, but putting her in charge of the Office of Management and Budget, which folks listening should realize, in my opinion, one of the most powerful positions in Washington, DC, because you really do kind of guide the budget and have an incredible relationship with the Hill, external people, et cetera, and agencies, of course. The, the objections to Neera Tandon were among the most ridiculous objections right. that I have ever heard. Um, mm -hmm. yep. And they, they mostly centered on a bunch of Republican congressmen uh, who supported President Trump through all of his vileness, being offended that she sent some nasty tweets. Yeah, I, that was what was most unconscionable. So, uh, But obviously the Biden team, Biden-Harris team knows that. And by putting her forward, she's brilliant. She runs, you know, the Center for American Progress and is in her own right, a formidable domestic policy guru. So I, I think, uh, again, it's just a statement that this is not going to be a formulaic approach to anything. And that this will, I think every, every nomination, every pick has had both this incredible Oh wow, that's really interesting. As well as a oh, that's really interesting, and that's that's probably a good sign. Well, Nira is brilliant, capable, knows the issues, knows how Washington works, and speaking on behalf of the nasty tweeters of America, we need representation too. Um, Brian, what is your take <laughs> on all of this? I was wondering if you're going to segue to me on that. <laughs> so I obviously agree with what you'd said at the outset, David, about the reasons to celebrate and be uh, awed in, in a very positive way about the composition of the cabinet as it's filling out. Of course, the two big ones uh, that remain to be filled as of the recording of this show is um, the Attorney General and head of CIA that I'm kind of fixed on what that will look like. But I guess just to introduce um, a concern, um, which is putting in place brilliant people who don't have a deep 
expertise or experience in the subject matter for which they are being assigned. So that could be uh, Dennis McDonough uh, for Veterans Affairs and Pete Buttigieg for Transportation. And I worry about that. I think it could be successful in individual cases, but when you start to add that up, um, I worry about that. And, and I worry in part, um, though I think there are multiple variables that count in other directions, but I worry in part like with Pete Buttigieg, it's not just about understanding transportation, but it's transportation and the intersection of racial equity. And how much does, is he steeped in that? Does he know that? Does he um, understand who the different actors are? So he has a, a sense of who to trust and not trust. And, you know, that's one of the concerns I have of, and, and then the constituencies that he has to, that all of these individuals have to think about. It's also about the perception of members of the veterans community that were surprised uh, by that pick. Um, and therefore the person starts out already at a, at, a, at a bit of a deficit with some of those individuals, though they have other strengths, um, uh, many strengths. Um, so I, I worry a little bit about how that's looking. Kavita, you, you provide a, a, I mean, do you have a counter argument to that? Do you have a different thought? thought I think, on that, um, I, I do think it's a concern. It's why I think that, you know, many people will regale in some of these choices and people will say, okay, you're really probably going to have a harder time um, integrating the agency, for example, kind of in proximity to the power of the White House. I think what I've seen watching cabinet members who are considered, I'll just say outsiders writ large, I think what generally happens is that uh, there is this sentiment to Ryan's point that you need to, you know, put a, put solid deputies around that person or surround that individual. Maybe it's a mayor, Pete Buttigieg, surround that individual with kind of people who are familiar and understand the building and understand how things work. But I think the bigger challenge now, David, to be honest with you, is that I, I feel like in a way, let's look back, not just on Trump, but even Obama. I mean, let's be blunt, like, it's not like the HUD secretary, look, you had, you know, you, you are now talking about uneven agencies and departments, and some are outsized and outstripped. And what I'll be looking for is the fact that President-elect Biden is obviously a foreign policy guy. You're seeing people like Tony Blinken, who David, you know, well, like you're seeing these really kind of familiar close in circle choices for some of those key positions. And then it does, I, I, I think Ryan made me think like, you know, then you find things that you don't really think about President-elect Biden being super strong on, health being one of them, maybe even veterans affairs. And you're, that's playing into why certain roles are being allocated to the people that are there. And so you do run the risk of continuing to kind of minimize the roles of those cabinet members in the Roosevelt room and when they bring the cabinet together as well as access in the West Wing. So, you know, a couple, just a couple of points, and then, Brian, you can pick up on this. You know, as somebody who's, I've, I've actually written two books about sort of how cabinets work together, and there are a lot of factors that go into making a successful cabinet, and experience is an important one, and I tend to be on sort of Ryan's side of the equation on these things. But I'll give you a couple of counter arguments just to throw them out there. One of them is chemistry is super important. The culture of the cabinet, do they respect the processes that they go through? Mm -hmm. Do they respect the institutions that they're serving in? Neither of those two things took place in the Trump administration. You're going to see a big mm -hmm. uh, shift in that. 
the leadership provided by the president, the vice president, a couple of other people in this process uh, is extremely important, including the the chief of staff. Uh, and there's a massive amount of DC experience operating here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in some cases, you know, the question isn't, is there enough experience? It's what kind of experience? And I'll give you the example. We were talking about it before of picking Susan Rice, a former national security advisor, a career foreign policy person to be the head of the domestic policy council. And my first reaction to that was, Oh, that's nuts. Um, and I know Susan. Well, I was, have to say this, I worked with her, but, you know, we worked in the same company and, and, and I've written about her. And my first reaction was how can you make a national security person, the domestic policy person? And doesn't this reveal one of those deep Washington biases, which is national security is hard. Domestic policy is simple, you know, and, and, you know, will you know, the, you know, you, they can handle it. Um, but the reality is, Biden's got an objective. He wants to make the Domestic Policy Council the equal of the National Security Council. That's never been done before. You need somebody who understands how to create a council like that. And you need somebody really strong to fight for that because, as Henry Kissinger said, entropy is the strongest force in Washington. And there's going to be all sorts of people saying, no, 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 no. And Susan is really strong. And a bunch of the issues she dealt with, including pandemics, infectious diseases, uh, economic issues, you know, as big international issues are front line domestic policy issues, mm-hmm. homeland security, immigration. They all have those kind of elements to it. So the reality is she doesn't have exactly the experience you would have expected, but she has a lot of, of relevant experience, just like Lloyd Austin does. You know, there's a whole civil mill argument, uh, but it's hard to say that he doesn't understand how the Department of Defense works. Um what would you like to see in the remaining appointments, uh, Ryan? Like, what? I mean, you know, you must sit around with all of your um, Department of Justice nerds playing, <laughs> playing fantasy DOJ games. Who, you know, who who would you like to see running the Department of Justice? So it's hard. Uh, I mean, if I were just thinking about the Department of Justice itself, I would think I don't want to see another straight white male moderate um, <laughs> running it. And I don't think that's what it needs right now. <clears throat> and I think that the department does need its integrity restored to it, but I don't think it requires a former judge to do that. I think there's so many um, extraordinarily talented people that could do that without pulling somebody off of the bench, for example. Um, you mean like Merrick Garland? for example. Uh, Yeah. I just, I don't see how that makes any sense. <laughs> Right. Um, to be honest, unless it's, it's, it's just the idea that it's the promoting more than anything else, this idea of uh, reestablishing the center. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, I mean, the Department of Justice in large part, I think, might also come down to questions of where one lands on the issue of accountability um, for Trump administration wrongdoing. And uh, in that case, I think the two names that are now at the top of the list don't speak well for that if, if one's interested in that. Um, so Mary Garland and Doug Jones. And it might require somebody like uh, Sally Yates potentially. Um, and then another name that was recently mentioned is uh, Lisa Monaco and I think she'd be terrific though she also might be more of the moderate uh, ilk. Um, what about you Kavita? Is there some other, are there balances that he needs to strike? Are there people you'd still like to see 
How do you feel about, I mean, we don't have a Commerce Secretary yet, uh, and there's been some talk about a Republican in the cabinet. Well, you've written the books. You know that generally speaking, there's always, you know, there, that is kind of the infamous, the Ray LaHood. The, there's always generally a slot for someone who's a Republican. And I think Trump and just now the 2020 era we're in has made that null and void. But I have heard the same rumors. I would love to see. So I will say that I think where President-elect Biden has this bench strength is understanding how the Senate works. You can't afford to take a Democratic senator out because of the numbers and put them in. Or I guess you just don't want to run that risk right now. You've already had Harris, but California obviously will put in a Democrat. So you do not want to run the risk of taking one of the Democrats. But it would be nice to continue to see somebody of that status and maybe someone who recently departed who's a Democrat. And I, I, I'm curious, Ryan, I didn't hear you mention Doug Jones. So I'm, or maybe you did, and I'm sorry, but you know, is if, uh, if we have somebody who is potentially coming out of the Senate and could be placed in one of the remaining cabinet positions to help with the fact that you're going to have a pretty hard Senate to navigate, potentially a hard house after the midterms where we think we might lose some seats on the Democratic side. I think that could be incredibly attractive. And, well, be- yeah. Before before we get off this topic, as we just turned back to it, Ryan, I mean, there's some groups that are still unhappy that Veronica Escobar was was uh, mm-hmm. vocal in talking about that we need a Latina in the cabinet. And uh, that's a very large population in the United States that's not terribly represented. Another group that's even um, crankier at the moment uh, and I can say that because I sort of think of myself as a member of the group, are progressives who are mm-hmm. like, where's our big progressive flag carrier? Mm-hmm. You know, the ones who, mm-hmm. um, now we don't have a labor secretary either. And there's been some talk about Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. Your your mention of the Senate brought that to, that to my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do, you, do you think, you know, this, this, this kind of balancing is, you know, the, the Democrats sort of were taking this too far. Ryan and and you know you've already got the most diverse cabinet ever in history by a lot mm-hmm. you know does it still matter or or um obviously to, to groups that aren't represented you know, perhaps it does I mean I think it yeah I, mean, I think it has to matter in a sense and Bernie Sanders himself has become more vocal about uh how important his constituency was to Biden's win and then not to see that reflected in the cabinet, I think is really hard uh, mm-hmm. for them. And it does remind me a little bit about the Obama period where statements are made about that they could take the left for granted. They didn't need to appease the left because the left had nowhere else to go. And um, I think that that's a serious concern, especially in trying to govern in this particular period. So yeah, I, I, I think that's a very serious concern. and. Maybe that is the answer to the position for the labor secretary, um, to have something there uh, that reflects that part of the constituency that is part of the, the country, let alone the Democratic Party. If you guys want to talk about this a little more, I, I'm, I'm happy to do it. But in the remaining time, uh, I'd like to shift to another subject that we talk about a lot. Um, and apparently the FDA panel just endorsed the Moderna Mm-hmm. vaccine um 
And so I just thought I'd turn to you, Kavita, and and shift the subject a little bit. Yeah, sure. Does it's... it does it make a big difference to have yet another vaccine? Are people going to want one over the other? That's a great um, question. Yeah, it, it does make a difference. And what happened today was uh, uh, at the time of this taping, uh, FDA advisory panel basically voted to recommend to the FDA commissioner who uh, ultimately has to make the decision to go ahead and move forward with an emergency use authorization for people 18 and older to receive this Moderna vaccine, which is very similar to the Pfizer vaccine that was already emergency authorized. And so that's uh, a big step forward. And here's here's why it matters. I think uh, in this first phase, nobody will have a choice. I'm supposed to be vaccinated in a in a week or so, and and I will take whichever one I can get. I think I'll mm -hmm. be getting the Moderna vaccine because only 2.9 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine went out. That's just how much they had, um, or it's half of what they have because you need a second dose and they didn't wanna have that run short. So Moderna has approximately 20 million doses that are available. So that'll just mean more vaccine, more opportunities. And I think that uh, the safety data is you know, young, but it's enough for me to feel comfortable asking to get it. And I will happily engage with people who, David, when it's your turn, Ryan, when it's your turn, all the questions in the world that you might have, because I'm asking them myself. So I think that's critical. Um, and the reason we need more manufacturers to be authorized is because we just don't have enough for the whole country from one manufacturer Remember, all of these manufacturers have a global demand for the vaccine, and America's done enough damage the last four years with Trump's leadership that we don't want to still continue to do damage by taking other countries' vaccines from them. So we do need to have more people coming for more manufacturers that um, complete phase three data, making sure it's safe and effective, and then applying for that authorization from the FDA. Can I ask you one follow-up question before we turn back to Ryan? You've worked in global health um, on the ground and, and, and out around the world. Uh, I saw a couple of reports this week that seemed to indicate that precisely what many people feared is what's happening. Rich countries are getting the vaccine. Poor countries are not getting the vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, and while the United States is a unique case of a rich country that has so screwed this up that we have a public health catastrophe on our hands doesn't seem fair doesn't seem doesn't seem like the system is working it seems like the market is working i just wonder what your reaction is. yeah i think that's look i i unfortunately and actually all three of us have witnessed global health emergencies of different kinds not to the level of covid but i will say that during h1n1 ebola um MERS, which obviously America did not have as much of a problem, but South Korea, Middle East, others devastated their populations. This is what I've seen. I hate to say it, but when I've been on the ground in India and other countries, I mean, there's truly, truly, um, you know, if you can afford it, you can get it. And there's already a black market about on COVID vaccines in India. So those of you that can afford it can get it and the rest of the country unfortunately will not. So I agree. It's one of the reasons that I'm looking forward to Biden joining the World Health Organization again, because it's organizations like the WHO and others 
who are going to try to do what they can to make sure there's an equitable distribution. Here's why it matters more than it ever did before though, David, in order to get to a level where we can truly get as close as possible to eradicating the virus. You may have heard Lori Garrett on this podcast has said, you'll never truly, truly get rid of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, but we can get as darn close to it as possible only through kind of a worldwide vaccination effort. So instead of like developed countries gobbling everything up and leaving everybody behind, which always happens, or market forces working the way they always do, we have a very vested interest in making sure the entire world has access to vaccine to get as close as we can to eradicating COVID. So that's why, just as a side note, it's why the AstraZeneca vaccine or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine are incredibly attractive because AstraZeneca doesn't require the kind of freezer requirements that you do have with Pfizer and even with Moderna. Um, Pfizer has the most strict freezer requirement. But as you know, David, on the ground in these countries, freezers, much less refrigerators are not really an option. And then Johnson & Johnson's vaccine is attractive because it's one shot. So also in developing countries, you know, telling someone, oh, sir, come back in 21 days so you can go get your second shot is just not realistic. So there is a lot of reasons to highlight what you're describing and, and we're solving it for the world. Well, there's still, I mean, last I checked, it, the numbers probably changed a little bit, but there's still a billion people in the world who don't have electricity. Mm-hmm. You know, you know yeah. then there's several hundred million people in India who don't have access to electricity on a regular basis. So, you know, mm-hmm. talking about f- freezer is a big deal. Ryan, you look like you have a, a question. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in with another question uh, for Kavita about what you think the horizon looks like with respect to public perception and voluntarily people um, taking the vaccine. And yeah, because yeah, like, wh- where do we need to reach? How do you feel like the public perception is already shifting? I do. Degree? Yeah, um, yeah, I do. And, yeah. No, 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 sorry, Ryan. And then, and then the last part would be, do you think there are going to need to be policy interventions where there mm-hmm. are certain kinds of requirements, like for attending schools or, or other things like that, where the condition of attendance will be that the person's being vaccinated? So interesting you bring that up. I'll start with that last because, uh, and, and Ryan, I'd love to get your take on it, but um, the EEOC put out guidance that actually suggested and, and clarified that employers can require that employees get vaccinated as a condition of going to work unless the employee declines because of a disability or a sincerely held religious belief. I, I frankly personally was shocked by that because um, I always thought it would be hard to require something that's not fully approved by the FDA. I mean, this is technically an emergency authorization, which means the benefit outweighs the risk. And I didn't think that that was something you could kind of quote mandate. And so that was interesting to me, Ryan, I'd love to understand your kind of take on that from a legal perspective. But then to your earlier question, we are already seeing a shift in Americans' attitudes about the vaccine. There's been about a 20 percentage point shift in people who have now said that they are very interested in getting the vaccine on top of already approximately 40% of the population that said, yes, they definitely want to get a vaccine. So we now have about two thirds of the country that is expressing interest. And I think that's great. I think it's coming from the fact that you're seeing people like me. I mean, the, the running joke amongst doctors, nurses, and techs is 
I'll, if it's an injection in my eye, I'll take it, you know, I'll do anything. <laughs> so that's, and that's literally how we feel about it. So I think that's been helpful where there is a lack though. And there's actually a call tonight with black physicians. There's been a call between pastors and church and faith leaders where there is some real serious concerns and we have to overcome them is are in black and brown communities, which have been screwed by the Trump administration, left to die, left underdiagnosed. Um, you know, the list and, and apparently on. have some issues with the vaccine. Well, and that's and that's the other thing, like, the you know, people perceiving that um, because of just the government's history with kind of quote rolling things out on people of color that you know, they don't want to be guinea pigs. And and I totally get all of that. I completely understand. So um, black physicians, which are a very small percentage of physicians in the country are really coming together, including the current Surgeon General, Jerome Adams himself. So I think it'll be interesting, Ryan, to see if we can actually make a difference in all populations, but it does look promising from the beginning. So let me flip for the last five minutes we've got here. Um, to one other subject. Um, and, and this one's more up your alley, Brian and Kavita, you may have a question for Ryan, but, but um, Bill Barr's leaving. I'm trying to summon some tears, but I'm not able to do that. Uh, he did a lot of damage. Uh, uh, somehow he managed to leave in a way that made people think, oh, maybe he's doing the right thing. Um, interested, obviously, in your comments on that. He's been replaced by an acting attorney general. But yesterday, a bunch of stories started to circulate that Trump wants to see this acting attorney general help him with some of his projects, which include launching a special counsel against Hunter Biden uh, or Biden family economic issues, practices, business practices. Um, and uh, also to launch him on a series of, uh, or enable him to launch on a series of pardons, which would be unprecedented in our history, including today, it was floated that he may be seeking a pardon for the CFO of the Trump organization. You know, that, that you know, that he may, now that's not going to protect him in New York, but sure is weird, right? Um, and kind of gross to think that a president of the United States who you know, seems to be guilty of serial tax fraud, according to the New York Times, and hasn't released his taxes, is going to be able to immunize everybody around him for violation of federal tax law. Uh, or is that a corrupt pardon, which is not permissible? What, 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 what do you think of all this? I'm not as concerned about the idea of the special counsel for Hunter Biden. I just think that's a big distraction. Um, and it's even puzzling to me that that would be such an that, that could even be a significant issue that would decide between like why Barr would be in place versus Rosen or anything like that. That just seems so small fry. Um, I do think the pardons are a very significant issue because I do think that is a pathway for Trump to try to obstruct justice partial, partially um, ex in exchange for what has already been given to him by the silence of Roger Stone um, and as, as an example of that. So com commuting Roger Stone in that way, uh, I think Paul Manafort might be due for his pardon. And then uh, trying to insulate his family and associates from future federal prosecutions. But, uh, and, and therefore any attorney general that would be involved in that could be involved in obstruction. So 
yes, the pardon itself might even be some constitutional law scholars say held valid, that no matter what, if he exercises the pardon, the pardon power means that you have to still effectuate the pardon, but that the exercise of the pardon, if it's done for corrupt purposes or obstruction of justice, could itself be a crime. So in the very waving of that <laughs> wand of the pardon, Trump himself might be exposing himself to liability and an attorney general who was aiding and abetting or involved in the conspiracy to obstruct justice through the use of the pardon. So I do think it's a very serious concern. Uh, and there are a lot of different pieces to this puzzle. Uh, so one of them might be by insulating some of these individuals from criminal liability, he actually does strengthen the hand of New York authorities who can now get those people to testify and they won't be able to claim a Fifth Amendment um, right to silence. Uh, so there are other strange, you know, follow-on effects, but I think that one place for people to keep their attention is on the pardons. At Just Security, we have a couple pieces about there are particular ways that some pardons might not be permitted, but they're, they're very few and far between. But there's this argument by Professor Aaron Rappaport, which is that you can't exercise, you can't have blanket pardons. You can't just say, um, this person is pardoned for any crimes that they may have committed um, prior to X date. And that that's understood by the framers in the constitution. But there's a debate about it. At Just Security, we have Frank Bauman, another professor of that legal era, um, historical era saying that that's actually untrue, that it is an unfettered power. And therefore people should be aware that when Trump pardons himself or, in, or not himself necessarily, but his family and associates, that it is such an abuse of power because he can get away with it. He would be effective is another way of looking at it. So it's, uh, I do think there's a lot of action there and how uh, Jeffrey Rosen behaves in that is gonna be important. Do you have any questions or thoughts on this Kavita? Yeah, I, I, well, I wanted to ask you, Ryan, just kind of building onto that, are, are, do you expect, everybody's been focusing on the pardon. Is there anything else that you could imagine through executive order, not related to pardoning, but you know, we're seeing kind of a president, there, there were, I think, even kind of reports I saw about him first saying he would not attend the inauguration, you know, ever since the Electoral College has kind of and, and Mitch McConnell has graciously acknowledged that Biden is a president. Do you see any other mechanisms through EO or any surprise regulations, anything to be watching for in this kind of final days that are that could also be an, a, you know, it, advisors close to him could probably point him to any any effectuation from those mechanisms. So I think that what they're partly doing um, on the international stage, I think, are policy changes that might be more difficult to reverse. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. So uh, I think that's one place that he might have a lot of running room. Um, and I worry about that. Um, I mm -hmm. think uh, the other part is, you know, contracts, military contracts yep. um, uh, with private parties uh, that fill in the gap from, from the U.S. withdrawal from some of these countries mm -hmm. is an area of concern. It creates a bureaucratic headache, uh, but it, uh, in terms of trying to unravel that. And then I do think that the mechanism that he's, that they've obviously thought about of special counsels is a, kind of a smart one because you might be able to um, wipe away U.S. attorneys, but it's very, it's going to be much more difficult to wipe away special counsels, including the, spe the political costs of doing so. So I think that would be another issue. And, uh, you know, David, I don't think you'd mentioned the other special counsel mandate that has been reported Trump is considering is for um, 
the election. Uh, so election fraud, special mm -hmm. counsel. So, and then if they pick the person, it could be some, somebody we would think is um, corrupt themselves and it would be difficult to reverse that. And there's a, just a, as a little bit to your point, Ryan, you made me think, um, David, I apologize, but there's this something all three of us will understand. There's been this kind of schedule F, have you followed this? This kind of uh, reclassification, which, but that's getting former career officials, presidential appointees um, that uh, wrote a letter about the concern around that 88% of staff positions at OMB, for example, would get classified as Schedule F appointees, making their incumbents subject to removal or appointment at will by political leadership. So it's that kind of damage, Ryan, that I worry about, that you know, even an incoming Biden administration trying to undo that quickly, just it, it's not gonna be easy potentially. Um, that one, I think could be undone. So it's in the sense of what was passed by EO can be removed by EO. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure why they can't remove it. And I'm not therefore also quite sure why they have tried to adopt some of these in the 11th hour. Um, okay. Since they are, since well, they that's are why I worried about it. I thought that's one of my, anyways, it's a, it's an interesting question. Why do it if it can be reversed that quickly? And my understanding was that it wouldn't be as easy to undo, but I defer to you. Well, it does seem that corollary to one of the big questions of our time is it may not be such a good idea to have a corrupt, um, demented and incompetent president who's on his way out and, and, you know, has a month to do whatever he wants. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's, it is going to be a rough month. There are 34 days left at the time that we are recording this mm -hmm. between now and when inauguration takes place. We'll be here. We'll be talking about all of these things next week. We're going to talk a little bit about 2020, which has been one of the most extraordinary years of all of our lives and has contained many things uh, that we hope will not be repeated and some things uh, that, that we've learned about ourselves that are that are good and positive and that we hope will be. And so uh, we'll be back uh, with some guests to have that conversation um, next uh, Wednesday. I think we're going to record it. Um, and uh, we'll have our regular Monday podcast and, and uh, we will get Representative Escobar uh, on to join us again soon. Uh, so you want to find out about how to do that? Go to the DSRnetwork.com. Everything about what we do is there and uh, you can sign up and you can become a member. You could buy DSR stuff as a Christmas gift or a stocking stuffer. Um, uh, or just something irritating to send to outgoing members of the Trump administration. You know that that they would love to get that um, as a reminder that they're they're done. Um, but uh, go there, do that, have good holiday preparations, uh, and above all, uh, in this difficult time, uh, stay healthy, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkopf, produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top experts, policymakers, and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR Network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed, discounts to virtual events and deep state radio swag and access to the member only Slack community. 
This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. You can learn more by visiting the DSRnetwork.com. Listeners to Words Matter will receive 25% off the regular membership price. Use code WORDSMATTER at checkout.